Hello, Happy New Year, and welcome to Mastering Dungeons. I am your host, Sean Merwin, along with my co-host, Mr. Teos Abadia. Hey, Teos. Happy New Year. Hey, Sean. Happy New Year. How are you doing? I am doing okay. I am excited for D&D. There's been a lot on the boards, a lot on Twitter, a lot of cool stuff coming, a lot of great talk about the industry and the hobby as a whole, and, and I'm just looking forward to diving into it all. I'm excited as well. And while I am in charge of my coffee cup, uh, you are executive lead designer. I am an executive lead designer, uh, which means my broom is extra uh, bristly. That's fantastic. Yeah. Yep. I'm uh, my first full day here. Uh, and I'm taking time out to talk with you. Thank you very much. Oh, well, and, I was all of us at home. Thank you. I mean, I yeah. thank you still. Well, that's okay. I, I don't do it for you. I speak for the people, the little people. <laughs> for, for all the people out there. So, all of us, the little people. Let's hop into the new year with some news on reviews. So first, Shannon Applecline takes a look back at 2020. And what did he talk about, Teos, in his RPG.net column? Yeah, so Shannon Applecline is a one of the big historians of D&D, uh, writes the like product history reviews for all most of the D&D products on the guild, things like that. He uh, writes recollections about the history of D&D, and he does a yearly review every year. And I, I, I think he's a little biased against D&D, which actually makes it more interesting to read his columns because mm -hmm. they tend to have a little bit of bite to them. Um, but he covers a lot of things across the industry and D&D. He talks about old designers who passed away from Brian Bloom, big part of D&D's history and lots of questions because he would never sort of speak out on how he saw history. Uh, Jim Holloway, Kim Eastland, who was the second director of the RPGA after Frank Menzer, Len Lakofka, many others in the industry. Um, so that's one thing that it starts with is, is just, you know, our hobbies getting older, historically speaking. And so yep. this is going to happen more and more. And we should treasure those folks who are in the industry. Uh, and then he talks about how D&D is at its sixth year of, cons of consecutive growth. Wow. With some changes as Avalon Hill, the board games group under Wizards of the Coast, moved to be directly under Hasbro. And then Hasbro and Avalon Hill relaunched the HeroQuest board game to great success as one of the first kind of parts of that change mm -hmm. which you um, contributed to by the way i did i did it was awesome yeah. and very good project um and there are things like fantasy flight games divested itself of rpgs and minis that was sort of a big change because they do mm -hmm. star wars and legend of the five rings and many others mm -hmm. talks a lot about inclusivity as a major focus right this was a big part of our 2020 not just in the greater escape of our lives mm -hmm. but in the in the the hobby it was a big deal right it really shook the hobby as an issue and and caused companies to and and, and players and dms and everybody to look at inclusivity more more carefully and to focus on it it's a complex issue that the industry faced all year long and clearly will continue to face mm-hmm he talks about COVID, how the pandemic impacted nearly everyone, huge impacts on conventions, how small companies sell, major distributors like Diamond threw in huge monkey wrenches and then switched back and forth. All of this was just deeply upsetting to kind of the stable way that the industry operates. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're well aware of online gaming and how that's grown. Oh, yeah. 
Uh, conventions moved online, but not all successfully. You know, Origins fell flat largely around issues of inclusivity. Mm -hmm. uh, it kind of moved dates and was maybe too optimistic about when people might be, be there physically and then tried to throw something online, ran into inclusivity issues and just had to cancel outright. Yep. So we'll see what happens for this coming year. Um, a lot of mainstream signs, RPGs becoming more mainstream. Comics books would release RPGs. Um, in fact, I just saw today they announced that Dark Crystal is going to have an RPG. Mm -hmm. So more things like that that are tied yeah. into larger media properties. Like fast food restaurants releasing their own yeah, RPGs. Yeah, that was actually yeah. ended in 2019. Yeah, I, I had yeah. to look it up because I was like, was Wendy's in 2000? Yeah. But, but yeah, I mean, there's been more of that. And then, of course, all of these famous people, whether it's movie stars or TV show casts, like uh, the Star Trek folks playing... Mm -hmm. Star Trek online, uh, you know, and, and streaming it. Yeah. Um, and then he kind of ends on RPG Kickstarters, which were uh, double the number of Kickstarters that raised 200,000 or more and slightly higher overall. And this is really looking at pure Kickstarter. So something like Matt Colville's huge Kickstarter actually yeah. doesn't always count because it might include a streaming component or other activities. Okay. Uh, but these are really like pure, you know, we'd say this is a bunch of books, right? Gotcha. And, and the growth there was substantial. Yep. Um, okay. It's a really interesting column. I highly recommend looking at, at Shannon's uh, series. Yeah. And uh, we can then look back also at what Wizards of the Coast did in 2020, um, such as the Explorer's Guide to Wildmount. The, yeah, uh, that was in March. The, the, yeah, the Critical Role campaign setting. Uh, Mythic Odysseys of Theros, the Magic the Gathering crossover campaign setting. On September, it was, of course, Icewind Dale, Rhyme of the Frost Maiden. Uh, October was the Curse of Strahd revamped, which I received recently and needed uh, four mules to lift. So <laughs> that is that is quite a, uh, quite a set. Um, November gave us the Dungeon Master's Screen Wilderness kit, as well as Tasha's Cauldron of Everything. And uh, it, you noted that this is actually a slower release than 2019, which had things like tactical maps, the Stranger Things box set, um, the Essential Starter Kit, et cetera, et cetera, the Rick and Morty uh, box set. So it, it, Acquisitions Incorporated. Yes, we can't forget about that book. Uh, but my Exodus Incorporated campaign ends tonight. So very excited. Oh, about wow. That. That's yeah. awesome. I can't wait yeah. for you to tell me how it, uh, how it yeah. goes. So yeah, it was a it was despite COVID a pretty banner year for uh, releases because despite that there was still the growth of the hobby and the growth of D and D um, throughout 2020. Yeah, I mean it was interesting I, to me that this year in terms of releases felt pretty good. As it, it was sort of interesting to see that it's leaner than 2019, but. I don't know that it was worse for Ad. In fact, it might actually be stronger for it. Yeah, I think I think the slower release has definitely helped the game overall, the hobby overall. And um, so in that sense, I think it may be stronger. And we'll see what, what's coming for 2020, whether they increase releases, uh, if they decrease releases, or if they sort of change shift gears and maybe release things outside the norm of books and DM screens and box sets and the like. So we all hate picking favorites, but if you had to pick a favorite release from those things that came out in 2020, Sean, Ooh. where would you go? That is hard to, oh boy, that is, that's a tough one. Um, 
Yeah, I, I, I would have to go with Tasha's, not, not because it's necessarily my favorite because I haven't even digested it all yet, but it, it moves the game forward, um, mm. in, in a way that what is both necessary and I think important for players at this point in in history. Uh, I think there was a lot of anticipation for it, yeah. and uh, so. That would be my choice. Yours? Yeah, well, that probably is the most influential of them. I, I would go with Mythic Odysseys of Theros, which I cannot kind of believe that I'm saying. Like, I would never <laughs> have thought that before I opened the book, you know, because this Magic the Gathering crossover. But it is a book that does exactly what it sets out to do, mm. and it does it phenomenally well. Yeah. And I just think that was a really, really well-made book. Mm -hmm. I, I agree. Yeah, I... I don't know enough about the Explorer's Guide to Wildmount. I would have said at the beginning of the year that would have been the most important. But the the pandemic hitting the US exactly when it did. Yeah. I, I may have I heard it. It may have dampened the enthusiasm or the uh or people's willingness to part with money at that time. Yeah, so. and as with Acquisitions Incorporated, I think that these collaborations with other groups, whether it's Critical Role or Penny Arcade, are great, but there still needs to be baked into this release, not just that the book is published, but there there is some support. If yeah. there had been an organized play series mm -hmm. of even just like four adventures or right. a few online events that were official, I think it would have stayed in the consciousness, right? A, a release like World Mount would have stayed in the consciousness of all players and been a far stronger and more people would dive into it and look at it and keep talking about it, keep using it. Right. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Um, also a year in review for a bundle of holding where they broke down their yearly sales. Uh, they said that 2020 started slowly, but ended 7% above 2019 and it's second only to 2018 where they had 67,000 customers purchasing over 50,000 bundles, including 8,000 new customers in 2020. So, you know, again, not as much as 2018, but, but more growth than in 2019. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I wanted to give a shout out to our friend, Mike Sly Flourish Shea, who had an article on dark vision and I'm calling, it's a very short article, but I think it's important, A, because it's so concise and so it has valuable information. And B, it's something that I was going to talk about during our review of Tasha's. And I, I, didn't, I didn't want Mike to think that I stole his thunder. Um, and this just came up today and these notes were written a while ago. So what Mike talks about is what dark vision really means. Um, and this is important as you will come to see in our review of Tasha's today. Um, so what does dark vision mean? Within a specific range, a creature with dark vision can see in darkness as if darkness were dim light. So areas of darkness are only lightly obscured as far as that creature is concerned. Okay, great. So what does lightly obscured mean? It means that if you are in a lightly obscured area, creatures have disadvantage on wisdom perception checks that rely on sight. Okay, so what does that mean? Well, it means obviously you have disadvantage on those checks, but using your passive perception, you're at a minus five if you have disadvantage. So uh, we're going to talk about that again later uh, when we talk about one of the new cleric subclasses. Sound good? Yeah. The other thing I would add is that there's an impact here on stealth. Mm -hmm. uh, because it's lightly obscured, you can try to hide. 
And so that is worth considering as well in that if you have a situation where like your entire party is using dark vision, well, one of the things then is that actually in the dark, you are lightly obscured. And so things from hide can hide from you. Mm -hmm. uh, and if a monster successfully hides from you, you can't sneak attack it and so on. And so it, it can right. be, there can be further penalties to choosing the strategy of we all oh. use dark vision, right? And, and, and it yeah. is for sure, it further underscores the whole, like, it's not like you can just see in the dark. Right. And it's also important to note that monsters that have dark vision are under the same penalties. Uh, yeah. So if, if your whole party has dark vision and all the monsters have dark vision, no one brings a light. Everyone is lightly obscured. So it impacts the, it could impact things greatly. Yep. So let's move into our review of Tasha's Cauldron of Everything, where we will look at the next two subclasses for the cleric, the peace domain and the twilight domain. So let's start with the peace domain. As for per usual, at first level, you get some extra domain spells. And so far, I've seen nothing where I want to, you know, light the world on fire because there is a spell or two there. Mm -hmm. uh, at first level, the peace domain cleric also gets proficiency with either insight, performance, or persuasion. Nothing too uh, out of the ordinary there as well. Now, again, at first level, you get emboldening bond. And this is where things start to get interesting. As an action, you can choose a number of willing creatures within 30 feet of you, which can include yourself, equal, you, equal to your proficiency bonus. You create a magical bond among them for 10 minutes or until you use this feature again. While any bonded creature is in 30 feet of another one, that creature can uh, roll a D4 and add it to the number, uh, add that number to an attack roll, ability check, or saving throw it makes. Uh, a creature can add the D4 no more than once per turn. Once you use this feature a number of times equal to your proficiency bonus, uh, you can regain all expended uses after a long rest. So you're getting a D4 for a number of people equal to your proficiency bonus for 10 minutes. Uh, my first thought was, okay, so I'm going to cast bless on someone. You're going to give them bardic inspiration and you're going to have a D4. It's a lot to keep track of. Uh, it, it's not overly uh, powerful, but it's just one more thing to keep track of. So by, by itself, I think it's fine. Depending on the, your party makeup, it could get pretty... <laughs> dicey yeah. uh pun the, definitely intended is that the bonded the, to get the bonus you have to be within 30 feet of another bonded creature mm -hmm. um and so so they need to keep that in mind tactically right and 30 feet's not that huge at the low levels later it grows but yeah. if, so that's a kind of interesting thing um it doesn't end it if you move outside of that but you just won't get the bonus and of course you're going to stack this right you're going to you're going to cast bless on top of it Right. So some parties will have some of the party members will have bless, some of them will have bless and emboldening bond. Right. Uh, and then you'll have your bardic inspiration. I think it'd be hilarious to cast bless. You know, you play a, a peace domain cleric, and you have a that bard we covered last time that has right. all of the different recurring yeah bardic inspiration bonuses, and it'd just be hilarious. Yeah. So so it's that it's that uh, trouble that you run in with design with by itself it's fine. But when you look at it in terms of the larger whole, it can get problematic. And you have to know that if they're doing this, I think it's cool. 
I think it's really cool. Yeah. I think it's fun. Yeah. Um, I don't think it's overpowered. It's just, and and you know that what's coming up has to add on to this um, because that's how a lot of these subclasses work. So at level two, you get channel divinity, balm of peace. As an action, you can move up to your speed without provoking opportunity attacks. And when you move within five feet of any creature during this action, you can choose to restore a number of hit points equal uh, to that creature equal to 2d6 plus your, wis plus your wisdom modifier. A creature can only receive this healing once uh, whenever you take this action. Okay. Uh, yeah, it's a channel divinity thing, so you want to be a little more powerful because you're you're using a pretty good resource to do that. Yep. Uh, really good if you've got three uh, of your allies unconscious, right? Yeah. Pop that off, move to them, and you are uh, back in business. Uh, any thoughts from you? I liked a lot that this really speaks to that subclass theme of being peaceful. So you're not provoking while you move mm -hmm. uh, because you're just sort of, I'm just, you know, I'm the medic, I'm the medic coming through, right? Yeah. No one attacks you and you uh, go past your allies and you can heal any number of allies if you can just reach them. So that's very powerful heal. 2d6 plus wisdom, uh, you know, and you're level two. Mm -hmm. um, that is awesome yeah. healing at low levels. So it, it makes you a very powerful healer. Yep. This is arguably stronger than things like, I would say, the level 17 order domain that we talked about last right. week, which was boost one allies I attack by 2d8. I yeah. would much rather have this level 2 feature than that level 17 feature. It's a true story you're telling. Uh, at level 6, you get protective bond. So when a creature affected by your emboldening bond uh, is about to take damage, a second bonded creature within 30 feet of the first can use its reaction to teleport to an unoccupied space within five feet of the first creature. The second creature then takes all the damage instead. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know what this has to do with peace, but okay. <laughs> uh, and I am not a big fan of te the teleportation part of this. I don't think you need the teleportation part. I think you could just as easily say another bonded creature takes the damage. Yeah. Because what happens now is you get these metagaming uh, sons of guns who <laughs> say, well, you know what? You're up on that ledge and I'm down here. Why don't you just cut yourself? Take a point of damage from your dagger and then I'll pop up. I get the free 30 feet teleport and I'll take the point of damage instead. It also says about to take damage. So you don't actually have to take the damage. You just act like you're going to cut yourself and someone can teleport to you. Right, right. So it's, <laughs> it, it is that, yes, you, you will get people trying to say, well, he was about to take damage. So I teleport there, but then all these other reactions go off and he doesn't take the damage and therefore neither do I. So that is, it's, problematic uh as written i don't mind i don't mind the intent of it uh yeah. but there's a lot to unpack when you start getting down into the weeds in it yeah and we already had this bond between characters between 30 feet like i don't know why we needed to have the teleport to sort of explain that they physically blocked the blow like we already have magic in play just leave it in magic i don't yeah. think the teleportation gains you anything other than complications and it's also one of those things that you might say like, oh, you know, you're about to get hit. Uh, I'm the cleric speaking here. Um, who want, does anyone want to teleport? 
And then like you, you know, the right. three people with the bond on have to sit there and think about whether they want to teleport. Yeah, no, you know, no, never mind. Okay. Next right. time that character get a, a character of the bond gets hit. Hey, do you want yeah. to teleport? Well, mm, yeah. no, let me, yeah. you know, you don't want that happening all the time. And it is right. a very tactical decision that requires analysis and mm -hmm. discussion between players. So it's a halt kind of thing. And yeah. I, the, just, yeah, the teleportation, I would not have moved forward with that, but yep. there it is. And uh, at level eight, you get potent spellcasting, which is the normal potent spellcasting that many of the yep. subclasses give. Uh, at level 17, you get expansive bond. Um, the benefits of your emboldening bond and protective bond now work when creatures are within 60 feet of each other. And moreover, when a creature uses protective bond to take someone else's damage, the creature has resistance to that damage. Um, again, I'm fine with that. At 17th level, heck, that's that's fine. Um, right. Just do the teleportation here, because at seventeenth level you yeah, expect you expect people to be popping around, and and it's it's not a big deal. Uh, so, what did you think of that uh, level seventeen feature? Uh, yeah, it's fine. It, certainly, the sixty feet is good because you're now fighting on much larger maps usually, and there's more movement and so on, and, and lots of cool features. It's more heroic, so that's fine. Um, the resistance is fine and and i overall i like the idea of reinforcing a subclass but there's always that danger design wise and there's this not, it's not that it's bad for this but there's always that danger when you lean into one feature and you're like every so many levels you're going to get a little extra thing to that core feature it it's nice that it reinforces it and focuses on the subclass mm -hmm. but it makes it sort of the one trick that the subclass does mm -hmm. and you really need to love it to use it i generally prefer that a subclass has different separate things it's giving me right but that are thematically aligned rather than constantly referring to the same lower level feature yeah yeah it, it is it is a dual-edged sword because when it's cool and it's great and it's fun um then it, it becomes the focus like you say but it could also easily just become repetitive um, and less fun to play as the levels pass yeah, and here, you know, the concept is peace, and it's supposed to be things like shoulder another's burdens, aid those who fight for the way of peace. And it's always that weird, like, you know, peace through combat, right? Eh, it's a little strange. Yeah. Yeah. I just think this should have been not peace, but something like family or camaraderie or something like that instead. Yeah. You know, the friendship domain, like just... Right. <laughs> yeah. To, this is my little pony domain, you know, like yeah, just... But peace, yeah. uh, peace sells, but who's buying, as the band yeah. Megadeth said. Yeah. We suck, but you buy it. Is that what it's called? <laughs> Sorry. Uh, but, but I, you know, it's, this would be fun to play. I, I just, you have to really be down with that core yep. feature that's taking place. True. So that was that domain. Next, we have the Twilight Domain, which is about bringing comfort to those who seek rest and protect them by venturing into the encroaching darkness to ensure that the dark is a comfort and not a terror. So what did you think right off the bat here? You Something struck you. Yeah, you know, I somehow I noticed like, oh, Twilight deities. And they have like a, a table of example deity and pantheon, like in Greyhawk, Celestian. And this made me look back and go, wow, in older editions, you had to worship a particular deity to mm -hmm. get domain spells or features or whatever came according to that edition. Right. And wow, am I glad that's no longer the case. True. So this table is just flavor. Yep. You know, it doesn't 
necessarily change anything. It's just, you know, you could say, hey, here's some deities that are associated with this domain concept. But any, you know, you can worship whoever you want as a character and you still can be Twilight Domain. And I think that's great. Mm-hmm. Yep. So at, at level one, again, more domain spells. Uh, at level one, you also get proficiency with martial weapons and heavy armor. And and this, I'm always curious about, there's basically two ways to go with these clerical subclasses, right? It's, do they give you martial weapons and heavy armor, or do they give you some extra uh, skills, proficiencies. skill proficiencies, yeah. or other types of proficiencies? And for this one, I'm thinking there's no way they're going to do the heavy armor and martial weapons with this one. Because this, for me, Twilight's like roguey. It's it's yeah. mystical and Fish boom. There, and, yeah. yeah, and boom, there's the heavy armor and martial weapons. And I'm like, okay, so you know, if it's protection, that makes sense. If it's if it's more about light and dark, then mm. mm-hmm. so let's see what comes next. Uh, level one, you get eyes of night. You have dark vision out to a range of 300 feet. That's a lot. Uh, I, yeah, this might be the biggest dark vision out there in the game. I wonder if I'm curious if listeners know of any source of dark vision that's greater than 300 feet because that's I, huge. I think the Gloomstalker for like the Gloomstalker Ranger okay. might have that or close to that, but yeah, that's that's a lot. Um, but again, that comes back to the question of you know, is dark vision really great? We'll see. Uh, as an action, you can magically share that dark vision with willing creatures you can see within 10 feet of you, up to a number of creatures equal to your wisdom modifier. Uh, the shared dark vision lasts for one hour. Once you share it, you can't do so again until you finish a long rest unless you expend a spell slot of any level to share it again. So it's another one of those. We saw that with the bard subclasses. You ran out of this feature spend a spell slot of sometimes a certain level, sometimes any level, and you get it to use it again. Uh, it's, I, I like that. I mean, obviously this goes along with the theme of twilight. You can see in the dark. Yay. Uh, but it, it brings up Mike's article and it brings up the question, how many groups really use light and vision as, as a main or as an important thing in their game or how many people just kind of hand wave it. Well, and I think that's what the reality is that groups want to get into a pattern rather than address this every single game, every Mm -hmm. single room, every single encounter, right? They want to establish their routine. Like in a dark place, we light torches or I cast light or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And so then I think this, what this does is it opens up the possibility that, well, what we do is, we share dark vision right for an hour yep and you know but because it's equal to your wisdom modifier you can't carry the whole party so you know the party makeup has to work but potentially what you're doing is you're constantly granting people dark vision an hour at a time right and that can be one of the routines that you use and that's where it's important to then read mike's article and think through these various factors so you know what that means if a whole party is doing it right whether you're a player or a dm so, you know, if you're in an area of light, th- now this is this is the question I had. If you're in an area of light, now it, it doesn't make th- a dim light around you, so never mind. I was going down the wrong road there. So if you're in an area of light, this doesn't really do anything for you. Yeah, this one is, th- this part of it is where you can see, later yeah. we'll get into the darkness, yeah. but in right. this part, you can just simply see 
yeah. with dark vision. So it's it just, only works if it's darkness, you now see it as if it's yeah. dim light. Yeah. If and it's magical darkness, it, it'll you have to look at the definition of the magical darkness is what Crawford recently specified. Right. To see whether it can be seen through a dark vision. Yeah. And so I thought, well, this is this isn't really strong. Even though it's level one, it's not horribly strong. And then I realized, oh, they gave you another level one ability, which is a vigilant blessing. As an action, you can give one creature you touch advantage on the next initiative roll the creature makes, and you can also touch yourself. Uh, this benefit ends immediately after the roll, or if you use this feature again. Um, it's very healthy to touch yourself. Yes, uh, I I like this not not touching myself, but the the level one <laughs> vigilant blessing. Vigilant yeah. blessing. Uh, I it's very simple. It's powerful enough that you know going before creatures can make a big difference in a game so it's it's powerful it's easy to adjudicate uh yeah yeah cool yep uh level two your channel divinity is twilight sanctuary as an action a sphere of twilight emanates from you this sphere centered on you has a 30 foot radius and is filled with dim light the sphere moves yeah the sphere moves with you and it lasts for one minute or until you're incapacitated or die why, whenever a creature ends its turn in the sphere, you can grant that creature one of these benefits. Temporary hit points equal to 1d6 plus your cleric level. Or you can end an effect that's causing charm or frightened effect. So, yeah. Uh, but my first question is, what is it with temporary hit points all of a sudden? Am, am I just noticing this more because it seems like no. every character that i've dm'd for recently has been able to grant temporary hit points it's as if yeah it's as if someone turned on a hey everybody let's give temporary hit points and and and, and i don't combats are a little bit on the easy side rather than a little bit on the hard side and so mm -hmm. bolstering hit points on players repeatedly mm -hmm. giving people shields is not great yeah I am, uh, in terms of the balance of the game so it's, I don't love the temporary hit points aspect of this. Yeah. And uh, so I mean, this just, is... Can I just pause and say, like, if you sure. think about how much damage creatures deal, outside of big spells, which are often counterspelled or whatever, but just looking right. at the damage that creatures inflict, if you subtract D6 plus cleric level from the damage mm -hmm. that is dealt, it's most of the damage. It's true. Across it's true. many levels of play. Yeah. Right? I mean, you can take some big fiends that are super, theoretically super dangerous creatures. And if you sub subtract D6 plus cleric level, like that is a big nerf. Yeah. And so to have this happen a lot is, yeah, yeah it's an impact. Yeah. If, if I'm even like, like you said, some of the larger demons that might do on a, on a claw attack, you know, 46 plus six. Mm hmm. If, if you're fighting that and you're 10th level, you're right. That's a D6 plus 10. So that's that's a, a significant uh, decrease. Uh, and then again, we, we bring dim light to the thing. So now you're not just getting dark vision, but you're actually making an area of dim light possibly within a brightly lit area. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like a Glabrezu does 30 points of damage, right? It's a CR9 creature. Mm -hmm. And that's if all three, if, if all f uh, four attacks hit. So I guess a little bit more than that. Let's say 32 plus 14. So 46, but that's a strong, right? That is a strong attacking creature that is all about its attacks. Yeah. And still, if you're 
shielding that off, you know, reducing that, eh, that's, it's, it's noticeable. That is right. a noticeable thing to have happen. Yep. Uh, at level six, there are steps of night as a bonus action when you are in dim light or darkness. And remember, you can make your own dim light or darkness. You can magically give yourself a fly speed equal to your walking speed for one minute. Uh, you can use this a number of times equal you to your proficiency bonus, and then you regain it all after a long rest. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm fine with you yourself being able to fly when you're in dim light for a bit. You know, it it makes sense in the theme of the domain. You're sixth level, um, so people can cast fly anyway. It's I'm I'm cool with that. Any yep. anything to add? Just. I mean, the dim light or darkness is a bit of a prerequisite that I don't know that you need. Um, it means that you might have to use your feature, which requires spending a spell slot, yeah. you know, to empower. That's fine. Yep. Okay. And uh, at eighth level, you get Divine Strike. So that's the, the Hitty uh, level eight one. And of course, you can always swap that out for the Blessed Strikes of the alternate uh, abilities of yeah. a cleric and at level 17 you get twilight shroud the twilight that you summon offers a protective embrace you and your allies have half cover while in the sphere created by your twilight sanctuary um, just so you know a target with half cover has a plus two bonus to armor class and plus two on dexterity saving throws yeah, I feel like we don't super need armor class boosts in the game but that's probably just because I keep seeing characters yeah. that you know parties where two of the characters have unhittable acs already yeah um so actually i'm a huge fan of players that have low acs <laughs> i mean really because it's right. it makes the game so much more fun it makes it fun um, for dms yeah yeah so i don't and it's not like they're dying right it's not like what we hear about is 5e murders characters and so i right. feel like i almost feel like designers should have like a checklist of caution green light you know like a yellow green light red light table of things that you that sub subclass features might boost often right and ac ac should be in at least the yellow if not the red zone right uh and temporary hit points should be in the yellow zone right and right. like be careful about doing this because it can impact the game so sharply right so this this is every time you're doing that twilight mm -hmm. you are giving them temps you're giving them the bonus to ac and dexterity saving throws that's a big buffing going on so yeah yep it's it's cool i really like this and overall, I like all of this. I love the theme. I really mm -hmm. like this theme. I like this subclass. I would enjoy playing it. I worry that it's a bit strong in the wrong sort of categories for, for just a better game. Right. I cannot argue with that. Uh, and next time we will move on and look at possibly the Druid. Is that Ooh. what comes after C? I believe it's D, yes. Yeah. All right. By the way, the Gloomstalker can be 90 feet. 90 feet yeah, yeah maybe it has a later feature that bolstered further i should yeah. check that but. yeah I'm, I'm one of my uh players has has it out to 300 feet i think okay so maybe so later I'll, I'll look and see if it gets yeah i'm really just late. trying to trying to remember how he cheats though so that might be it that's probably what it is but we are now going to leave tasha's cauldron crawl our way out and dry ourselves off from whatever was in that cauldron and get into the cold and windy ice wind dale where we will look at chapter four destruction's light so for in chapter three the characters were sent to investigate sunblight the durgar fortress 
of Zarkarak Sunblight. When they get there, they have a choice whether they can continue into the fortress or turn back to stop the Shardland dragon that flew out to attack the Ten Towns. Um, at this point, PCs are either fifth level if they have gone back to uh, the dragon or sixth level if they went into the fortress and are now going to stop the dragon. And there's yeah. a small chance you could be fourth. Right. But it's probably, hopefully, small. Right. So you want to tell us uh, the premise of this chapter, Mr. Abadia? Yeah, so there's a quote there. It says, The point of this chapter beyond pitting the characters against a formidable draconic foe is to make the players aware that their characters' choices have consequences. If the characters do nothing to stop the dragon, ten towns will be destroyed. Many lives hang in the balance. And I love this premise. This is a sweet, awesome premise. What we're going to get into is how to make the adventure deliver on that because it falls a little short of that spoiler it, it, it does it does and we are going to try to get through all of chapter four today so we may be light on you know very specific details but we are going to try to give you sort of a, an overview for how to maybe change what's there to make it deliver on this cool premise um yeah, that's provided the, the, and the chapter has a number of sections. I like how it's broken down. Um, and we might do it a little differently just to try to, for the interest of time and, and, and logic. Mm. And let's start with the concept that is important to understand, which is returning to 10 towns. You're dealing with the fact that the dragon has a particular flight path. And we get both a map and a table. The map shows the, the way it's flying, the, you know, which town in which order. And then we get a little table that shows us how many hours it takes uh, to go from each town and from Sunblight to the first town and so on. Mm -hmm. Each step in the path, how long it takes the dragon. Yep. Uh, but then additionally, we are told in the text of each town mm -hmm. how long the dragon takes the, staying there and fighting off whatever resistance it does or doesn't experience. Right. And that's a mistake that this table should have addressed. The table should then have a, how long are you actually there? Because it's not just that flight path table. It's also the how long you stay. Right. Woo. And um, if you don't read carefully ahead of time, you may think that the flight time includes the destruction time, but it, does it definitely not. does not. Yeah. It also takes hit points of damage at various towns. I love the narrative quality of that, but it actually doesn't need to take damage. And we'll talk about fighting the dragon later, but, but sure. it's worth noting that. What I do love, we'll talk about this more later too, is that it really, like it shakes up the 10 towns. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm impressed. You don't usually see Wizards of the Coast destroy NPCs and level buildings and all that kind of thing. And, and you know, named NPCs die. This is a big deal. That part is really cool. Yeah, especially if he, the dragon, it, gets all the way through its its cycle and gets to Bryn Shander and is not stopped. Uh, I was thinking, oh, you know, you'll lose a few. No, it's it's most of the people in the Ten Towns die. I think there are, what, 300 survive? I forget what the total is, but most towns learn, it lose between half to three quarters of their population. And, and then they have all this thing where the survivors go to the final town. Right. And there it's a horrible bloodbath that takes place. Yeah. Because I, it's not just the dragon, Dwer, invisible Dwergar also popping out to support the dragon as part yep. of this scheme. Yeah. Um, all right. So then one of the questions about whether you can is 
can the PCs get back in time? And, and this is the thing that I think is the hardest and, and maybe the, the, where this adventure really could have done better is to help the DM with what the DM needs to know to run it. Because what's going to happen is you're going to make a decision whether to go into the fortress or not. At some point, you are now going to try to run back to town. And the question is, can they get there in time? Where should they go? Mm-hmm. The adventure throws in a little wrinkle in that it, when they decide to turn back to town, up comes this sled, uh, three sleds that are driven by kobolds and kobold zombies and headed up by Veline Harpel, a wizard of the arcane brotherhood. Mm-hmm. And she will say, I'll take you back to town, which maybe the characters want that, maybe not. I mean, so she's got zombies. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. And she says she will suggest going to Bryn Shander where the town towners will set their final stand. And she does say final stand. So the good news is, hey, you will not miss the dragon if you do that, and you will help. But all other nine towns will be destroyed if you go that route. Mm-hmm. So you should probably let your characters think about it and yeah. use any knowledge they have, because it should be clear this is like the all other nine, you're sacrificing all nine towns to go help with this big stand. Uh, she can be persuaded to fight the dragon, primarily by using a wand of magic missiles. That makes it easier. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think just in general, my thought as a player would be, and even as a DM, is really they can get somewhere in time to stop a flying dragon. Yeah. And that gets us into a whole thing about travel times, which is very confusing because travel times in this book are found in individual chapters and are based on the roads between towns. Right. Or we can use the general one mile per hour sled time but it says that you have to rest an hour every other hour to avoid exhaustion for sleds. So it gets really confusing as to how you're supposed to measure things. The yeah. easiest is to use the travel times between towns. And, and one thing that's fortunate, I'll just cut to the chase here, is that uh, someone did all this work on the website alexandrian.net. Mm-hmm. And what it makes sense tactically is to always go to Dugan's Hole first and from there travel the roads to any town that you decide to go to. So because of that, it makes calculating time easier because you're not trying to like go around lakes and all these kinds of things. You're just going to this one town and from there going to different ones. And what it all really kind of breaks down to be is that it is impossible to save no, and no matter what your decision is, you cannot get there fast enough. Whether you went into Sunblade or not, you cannot get to Dugan's Hole, Goodmead, East Haven, Cairdinable, or Cairconig, even if you go straight there as your first priority. Yep. The dragon will always beat you there no matter what happened. Um, and that's sort of fascinating because, you know, again, this premise is all about choice. Mm-hmm. Um, then it, it becomes the question of do the characters know where to go? They could always just save one town and go to the end. Right. But assuming they don't want to do that and they want to try to be smart about it, how do they know? Well, if they have the map, they know the order it's going in, but then they're just guessing. Mm-hmm. The best case scenario is you go to Tarmelane. You arrive 90 minutes before the dragon does. This is assuming you didn't go into Sunblight. Uh, and you can stop the dragon there, and that saves all the other towns which means you save tarmelane and one two three four other towns yep so five towns half the towns is your best case scenario your worst case scenario is your characters choose a town 
find the dragons already been there. Now they've lost town time and they'll probably go to a town that the dragon has also been to, at right. least by the time they get there, and they may save no towns. Right. Or only Bryn Shander. Right. Because if they don't go into the fortress, they don't know the path that the dragon's taking. Right. And that's you know, that's super important to remember. And, and even if they do, they could guess wrong. Right. Which is really dissatisfying. <laughs> like if you know the path and you go, Oh, okay, great, you know, let's go to Karkonig, which is, you know, somewhere in the middle of where it's it's like the one, two, three, four, the sixth town it's going to. Well, if you go to Karkonig, you're not getting there in time. Yep. And you now what do you do? Right. Oh, uh, maybe we just go to Bridge Standard and save one town. Right. What was the yeah. point of getting the map? Yeah. It's and, a bit infuriating. And if your players are like most of the players that I deal with, when they're presented with this problem, they want all the information up front to make this choice. Yeah. They, they want to know what they're dealing with. They want to make the optimal choice. But the, as the book presents it, even you as the DM don't know. And you can go through and, and do what this person on this website did. But even then, there is some conjecture uh, yeah. on, on, on his or her part uh, when, when they created this, uh, you know, yeah, the this, travel times. this travel time document. So as, as you point out, the, it, is, it doesn't say, well, did you just spend 14 hours getting the Sunblight? Are you exhausted? How, how, did you do a forced march? Because if you go by the travel rules, that's what you should be using. Yeah. And so as the DM, you really need, you might need to make an executive decision <laughs> and say, okay, you know, based on your nature check or a skill check that from the mountain, you can see in the distance, the dot of the dragon. And therefore, you know, its path uh you may have to decide that you can give them a hard choice still you'll have to decide what that hard choice is um you know maybe you can get to the third town in time but you're going to have a level of exhaustion to get there then you now you're making it an interesting choice uh for your for your players yeah and and I would, you know, what I would look at as, and I'd say this largely to people who design, uh, don't create unnecessary math or unclear math for DMs when you design. Mm -hmm. um, because as you said, players want to know, they want to make intelligent choices. And so they'll say to the DM, wait, wait, help me understand this, right? What do I know? What do I see? And if the answer is nothing, that's very dissatisfying. And the whole point is about making this a choice. And so ideally what adventurers do is they provide you with good data. So you have some clarity, you feel smart about making a decision, but that decision is hard, right? Because there's an emotional piece or because you can't weigh the factors, you have good data, but you must make a gut check, right? Which is your favorite town or mm -hmm. um, save the important town, but lose two other towns or something like that is something that players, I think, grasp very well. Mm -hmm. Um, in this particular case, the last thing that I think we want to see any DMs doing is sitting there trying to extrapolate math. Yeah. And that's the easy thing that happens when you read this chapter, or the most likely thing is that the DM will try to like pull out a ruler and figure things out. And that's not what's going to lead to satisfaction. So my recommendation would be 
along the lines of what you're saying, you know, provide checks uh, to allow them to have some uh, better understanding of where to go. And I would actually almost think about a new method that you could do to say, uh, to, to combine factors so that the decisions seem important, right? Like mm -hmm. there should probably be some advantage to using this, these three sled dogs that Valine Harpel, her name is, mm -hmm. uh, provides, right? That should be some advantage, even if they have sled dogs. And so maybe that's like a plus one town saved. And maybe if they make a nature check, that's a plus one town saved. And if they make a survival check, plus one town saved. Mm -hmm. Maybe having the map is plus two towns saved. But maybe you lose a town for each level of sunlight you explored. Mm -hmm. And minus one if you took each short rest that you might take. Minus one if you travel on foot, something like that. And now you can do a very quick math that could right. have been in a little table to say, hey, and you could even do this in your head just as a DM. You know, like it feels like they did a pretty good job. Um, you know, they at baseline's arriving at Lonelywood, and then I can move it up and down which one you arrive. Mm -hmm. And now we have a story and we have implications and can feel it. So I would suggest to DMs to somehow try to think through this and not worry about measuring exact distances, but more how to make decisions translate to which town they're going to get to. I, I agree. So let's talk for a minute then about the actual dragon battle itself. Any thoughts on once the characters get to the dragon, uh, yeah. what, what to do? do? Does it change depending on the town they're in? Um, how, how would you handle that? So the dragon is CR 11, which means it's well beyond the deadly fight for level five PCs. Uh, but I think it's actually okay for level five PCs because it does not have legendary, um, uh, features mm -hmm. and it's, um, wh while it, it can deal some really strong damage, uh, there is a, a YouTube where Tom Christie, who's a well-known, a adventures league DM records actual play of the level six party. And he boosts the hit points of the dragon by a large amount, maybe 150% of its normal hit points. And they have no problem, this level six party dispatching mm -hmm. the dragon. And it is a cool monster, but I think at level six, it's easy. I think at level five, it's probably decently fine. Mm -hmm. At level four, it's probably very hard. Yeah. So it's I a little think, bit hard. And, yeah. I think the difference between level four and level five is huge here. Huge. Because once yeah. you get to fifth level, you get those big boom spells and the extra attacks and, and so on. Because uh, when I looked at the monster, I'm like, ooh, CR 11. That's and then I looked at the hit points and went 147. A, a six level party could probably do that in two rounds, yeah. even at even with an armor class of 17. Um, yeah, and the tactics aren't very clear. We get a, a statement that is more about how it attacks towns, that it likes to strafe settlements from the air until yeah. it's incinerated, all sorts of stuff, and then it'll land down to just you know eliminate any survivors, and that's what all dragons can do that's just completely insane is if the dragon just strafes you, leaves, strafes you, and all the players are doing is attacking with ranged weapons and you're going to have a number of combatants that aren't good at range, the dragon will win. Yeah. And so a lot of it is down to the DM of when do you want your dragon to land? And what I'd probably do is have it do, you know, a breath weapon, fly away for a round mm -hmm. to give him some sense of, you know, doom, recharge its breath weapon, 
land and breathe, right? Because the players will hopefully have not stayed in breath weapon formation. And that at least is very hard, hopefully, but it is now gives them a chance because it's on the ground. Um, because it's overly smart. The other thing that's really bizarre about this is there is a thing here that says that if they deal 30 damage to the dragon, uh, the dragon flies to the next town. Yeah. Uh, that will mean that the 10 towns are going to probably burn because you can't catch, catch up to the dragon. And since you're probably at least halfway through the list, you know, yeah, you could skip a town, but that's very dissatisfying. So I would not have it fly away, or at least if you're going to have it fly away, I would telegraph that, communicate that ahead of time, give players lots of very easy checks so they can see that it, its intent is to fly away because of the damage it's taken, and then um, give them ways to keep it there. Like, oh, if you, you know, if you can pin its wing, or if you're on top of it, or you know, create mm -hmm. some heroism here so that it does not fly away. Because I think that would be very dissatisfying. Yeah, and if it does, leave it in that next town. So, so that if the characters follow it, they can catch up to it. Yeah. Uh, you know, have it spend an extra two hours attacking the town rather than just after 30 minutes decimating everything and then leaving. And the sort uh, of control valve that this encounter has is that it goes in the final town. It stays there fighting for like six hours, which is a yeah, long time. Yeah. And uh, it also, the dragon has allies that will come and help it in the form of Durgar. So you can always play around with uh, adding those Durgar, adding a couple extra if your character, or if your party is very strong, uh, because that will then give one more uh, element to the fight that the characters will have to deal with. And it has a malevolent presence ability, which is interesting. Uh, it can basically charm creatures and the DC on the saving throw is DC 16 wisdom saving. It's tough. Yeah, that is tough. And it's any creature within 30 feet of it. So that's a lot. Um, you do get a save at the end of each of your turns to end the effect, but it can do it to NPCs. Yeah. And so they might join it, the dragon in fighting the characters and their allies um, if yeah. they fail. So that's another way that you can use that um, its abilities to make the, the combat more interesting if it looks like the party is going to kill it in two rounds. Yeah, and I really like the Towns and Chaos table, which is a table where you can roll to see these various events, including Dwergar attacking. Uh, and they have sort of different things, like an invisible Dwergar or a, a huge, you know, enlarged... Uh, Dwergar, uh, thieves that are robbing the town, uh, a villager that needs help, stumbles in wounded. Those are great because what they do is they, if, if your combat's too easy, throw these in there because what they often do is not just add something to fight, but they remove one or more characters for a round as they deal with this emergency to be heroic. Mm -hmm. And this is always a good tactic to have this under your you know, wings, and you can pull out when you need to, to, to distract a PC by, hey, you know, don't you want to save this poor PC that's about to get crushed by a building? Right. Of course you do, and now yeah. you're not attacking the dragon for a round. Yeah, yeah that, that is very nice. So overall, the idea behind this chapter is wonderful. Um, yeah. You know, this, this idea of not just beating down the doors of a dungeon and killing everything inside, but actually thinking and planning and and fighting a battle that is very unique to D&D &D in some ways. Uh, yeah. 
is great. You just need to be able to, willing to, ready to help the PCs understand what their situation is by you understanding what their situation is and how you want the narrative to go based on their uh, choices and the consequences of those choices. Yeah. And we talked about impact on 10 towns, you know, the, the book lists town by town, what happens mm -hmm. when the dragon visits each of the towns. And it's a great narrative. Like I really love, love, love yeah. how this is written. It's, it's exciting and it's neat. And it reminds you of all these, various NPCs and buildings that we haven't seen in a couple of chapters. Um, and that's a thing that can happen is that your players might have sort of forgotten mm. about the important parts of this town. And so one of the things that I think you should do, obviously, in the town that they visit, you can describe some of this devastation that's happening. But afterwards, give the players some time to tour the 10 towns mm -hmm. and see its impacts and maybe help in small ways. Right. You know, they maybe they have some coins they want to distribute to like fix some places up, uh, but they should hear about all these things that took place. Like there's some neat stories about like the uh, the speaker who's a dragonborn who's drunk. He's actually passed out in a snowbank when the dragon comes. So he lives mm -hmm. and then he deals with his guilt. Right. Like this becomes a thing that, you know, they must carry with them the fact that they could have actually they were like the one person in that town that could have stood up to the dragon and, and instead and failed, they were yeah. drunk passed yeah. out and so they missed yeah. it um and, so and there's there's a there's a opportunity here to do something with say downtime yeah uh to to do that tour of of the town to help rebuild to take advantage of some opportunities uh if the characters want to do a business or or something like that uh, that's a great time and we talked about good meat as a cool home base and uh you know in, in your early chapters as a possible town to focus on mm -hmm. uh you might be its speaker right right uh, and one of the cool things is officially it has its mead hall spared which is also the the main government hall um so that's good news if you made it your headquarters or franchise mm -hmm. um and in fact it could be fun if you're using the franchise rules you can use your hirelings to further help and reduce damage that might require some checks to maybe even see how well the characters train their hirelings that yeah. could you know save some other buildings there's a lot of neat things you could do and yeah certainly downtime mm -hmm. uh east haven spares its main building so that's another one that we had suggested as a good starting town yep. and again there are some things left there that pcs can rebuild around there so I would try to emotionally appeal to the characters and, and tie them into this restoration, not have them go like, oh, cool, we saved the towns, you're all in ruins. Later, we got to go on our next quest. Yeah. Speaking of that next quest, <laughs> uh, it just so happens that the quest giver is um, Valine, who maybe offered some <laughs> sled dog help or kind of helped the characters in the battle with the dragon a bit. Yeah, uh, a bit. So... As long as the characters are seventh level, uh, then Velen is ready to tell them about this lost city uh, from Netheril that is buried under the ice. And she needs their help to get to it. And that is, uh, that is the hook for the next chapter and the rest of the, the uh, adventure, basically. Yeah, I almost thought that this information should have been push to the next chapter mm -hmm. rather than put at the end here 
yeah, it, it it was odd that you know all this was going on, but you sort of hear more information than you need about the next quest uh, because she doesn't tell you, she doesn't tell the characters about it until she knows that they're ready, right? To 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 take it on. So it may be the uh, you know. You know, I thought it was funny. At one point, it says the book says something like, you know, if they aren't quite high enough level, you know, have them do some more chapter two quests, you know, wander around the ten towns. I'm like, what? No, stay on the story. Like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just bump them up in level. But, you know, it does say, you know, you could a thing that is logical is if you they've not taken down Zardarok. Mm -hmm. Right. Obviously, he sent the dragon. So go deal with him for sure. So if you haven't been to Sunblight, they yep. can go to Sunblight first and then Villene will contact them. Um, and similarly, if they aren't seventh level or if the dragon somehow has not been defeated, like those, those things should happen. Um, and I, there is time to do things like survey the destruction or finish any loose ends you had. Like if the characters really want to establish peace between the Goliath tribes, Hey, have at it. Right. Yep. So. True. So that is chapter four. Did you have anything else to add before we shut down for the day? No, we'll we'll put the details of Villain's quest in the next chapter. I I love the chapter's premise, um, and I think that this in play, if a DM, you know, does the right work here, this is going to be a really memorable chapter for players, and for they sure. won't they'll have no idea you know, done correctly. Players will have no idea, uh, sort of <laughs> what you had to do to make it awesome, and it will just be awesome. Exactly, exactly. So. Thank you to all our listeners and thank you to our patrons. And I wanted to give a shout out to some more patrons um, to old school DM Randy Farmer, to Troy Sandland, Will Doyle, Zach Goins, Chris Constantine, Cindy Moore, Eric Simon, Mirko Froelich, Andrew Demps, Brantley Harris, Chris Steele, Chromatic Chameleon, Cubano, Curtis Y. Takahashi, Derek Broughton, Eric Mengi, JT Evans, Jared Rasher, Jen Pixelscapes Gagney, Jim Fitzpatrick, Joseph Peralta, Carl Halperin, Merrick Blackman, Mike Amer, My Brett, Ninjabi, Rainmaker, Richard Ruan, Rory McLeod, Savannah Sizer, Scott Ryder, Steve Bissonette, Steve Radabaugh, T. Kustik, Ted Atkinson, and Victor Wyatt. Thank you so much for being patrons of the show. If you would like to be a patron, you can go to patreon.com slash MMP and provide us with a little bit of money for our efforts. So thanks. Thank uh, you so much. Yeah. Teos, where can people find you on social media? You can come talk about mastering dungeons uh, on Twitter at AlphaStream or on the Misdirected Mark forums. And I have a blog at alphastream.org. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Sean Merwin or at the forums at forums.misdirectedmark.com. And now you can follow this podcast on Twitter at MasteringDND. Mastering Dungeons is a Misdirected Mark production, the media arm of Encoded Designs. So, Teos, our guide in the Ten Towns, what are we going to do now? Let's go kill some monsters before they destroy our towns. That's a great idea. Where should we go first? <laughs>